0: I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett.
1: And I'm Christopher Kelly, special guest host for this bonus episode of Father Wants Us Dead, a podcast about the John List murders and the 18-year quest to bring a killer to justice from NJ.com and the Star-Ledger. Jess, Rebecca, I have to say it is really exciting to be on this side of the studio alongside the two of you after spending many months in the sound booth as your director and one of your executive producers.
0: Yeah, now you get to see what it's like behind the microphone.
1: Yeah, welcome. This isn't as easy as it looks, I'm quickly discovering. So as our listeners know, our season concluded with the amazing ninth episode of Father Wants Us Dead in which the two of you explored the heartbreaking legacy of Liss Crimes and the struggles of an entire town to move past this unfathomable tragedy. And you also served up a terrific bonus episode in which you answered reader questions and talked about the sections of the podcast that we ended up leaving on the cutting room floor. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how this podcast came to be. We're going to show our listeners how the sausage got made. We're going to talk about the highs, the lows... The interviews you were thrilled to land, the interviews you couldn't land, and all the feedback you've gotten since the podcast premiered in May. Are you guys ready for this? I think so.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I'm I'm a tough interviewer. Not as tough as you two, but I'm a tough interviewer.
0: I feel like I could talk about it all day. Bring it on.
1: So I want to start with a simple question. John List. His story is one of the most famous crimes in New Jersey history. It's been told in books and movies. Everyone in the town of Westfield knows about it. Of all the crimes you could have explored, what made you think this one would make a great podcast?
0: I think it's really a combination of the crimes themselves and then List himself, his personality, and the fact that it's such a saga, right? Like from his upbringing and then his family and then the crimes. But then it just keeps going because for 18 years he's on the run. And then he gets caught, and it's still not over. It's wilder than any horror movie, and it's real.
1: And it keeps twisting, and it keeps turning, and and you never quite know where it's going to go next.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. And I think for me, being a Union County native, everyone thinks they know this story. It's so well known that the facts get muddy. So I was really excited to do the definitive deep dive answer the questions about the skylight, about Patty, about his relationship with Helen,
1: and really get it right. But where do you even start with a case this famous, this big? Do you just start calling people? Do you read books? How does this get done? How does the research and the reporting happen?
2: starts with a giant Excel spreadsheet. I think we just read and consumed everything that's been written about lists, all the books, all the TV specials, and we wrote down every single person, every proper noun mentioned in all of those and made a big call list. And then we started calling.
0: Yeah, and it's not easy to find those people, right? Like people got married twice, they changed their name, They so many people moved away. I mean, the, a lot of these people were were kids when they lived in Westfield. They've lived all over the country, you know, and...
2: Never mind that the crime is 50 years old. So we were worried and realized that many of our sources had passed away.
1: And many of your sources were in their 80s and 90s, and you were in a literal race against time to give them one last opportunity to tell their story.
0: Yeah, definitely. Unfortunately, there were some sources that passed away before we could call them. And I actually just found out recently that Randy Nidecker passed away. Oh. He was one of the FBI agents who helped in the arrest of List. He sat with Dolores, you know, while Kevin August was going to get List. But it was sort of crushing to hear that because I had just, I got to talk to him. But then I listened to that interview so many times. I just felt like it was a big loss.
2: I feel like we felt connected to, you know, everybody who was willing to talk to us and really grateful. And they were all such characters that they're really distinct in my mind.
1: We're going to talk about some of these characters a little bit later on. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about is reporting all this during a pandemic. How did that affect the podcast? How did that affect the reporting?
2: a lot of outside reporting, which presented its own challenge when you're on people's porches and backyards. There was always somebody leaf blowing. Everyone was mowing their lawn. There were dogs. There were birds. Yeah, it was really tricky.
0: Yeah. And a lot of those interviews that maybe we would have done in person, we just ended up doing phone calls.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about local reporting. The two of you have been local reporters for a combined 25 plus years, and it's a very specific and unique role you really get to know a community, but the people in that community really come to rely on you. How do you think being local reporters helped you tell this story? I think it definitely gave us an edge. Um, And for me
2: personally, I grew up in Union County. I spent a lot of my years on local reporting in Union County. So I had some connections to some of our sources. I had spoken to Barney Tracy before. I knew Gabe Gluck because I'd run into him in the county courthouse. Um, And that really also helped whenever we were talking to them about Westfield, the town, as its own character. Because I could relate. You know, it's a place I've been a million times.
0: And the Star-Ledger being, you know, this institution newspaper that people have heard of, I think it made people more willing to talk to us and sort of trust us to be the people who will care enough to tell the story the right way.
1: But Rebecca, that makes me wonder, how much pressure did you start to feel to get this story right?
0: Yeah, I think as reporters, we're always obsessed with getting it exactly right, accuracy-wise, like technically correct. But in this case... My biggest concern was trying to make sure that we were really telling the full story and not boiling these people's lives down to like a little soundbite.
2: And there's an intimacy about a podcast. We're not just using their words in print. We're using their actual voices. And in some cases, you can hear these people getting emotional. So you really feel compelled to use that correctly and to get the story itself right.
1: Before I was an editor, I was a journalist like you two, not as good as either of you, but I was a journalist, and I know that every journalist talks about that moment when they're doing a big story when they know they've got it. Maybe it's an amazing interview or a new discovery or what have you, but until then, you're not really sure if you have the story or you're sort of fishing around, you don't know if your hunches are going to pan out, but then it happens, everything clicks, and you're like, this is going to work. What was that moment for you guys in this podcast?
0: For me, it was this moment in the initial batch of calls I was making uh, when I called Robert Kenny. He was one of the officers who responded to the crime scene. Not a lot of them are still alive. And then he didn't just tell me what he saw. He told me what he experienced and how all these officers there were seeing this thing and just trying to go about their job. But it's not a normal day on the job.
1: Let's listen to that clip.
0: Was it one of the worst crime scenes you ever went to? I mean, it got to be up there, right?
1: You know, in my
3: time, I spent 14 years in investigations, a little over 14 years. And you see an awful lot. And even in a small town, you see a lot. People do
1: terrible, terrible things to other people. And you have to kind of turn it off and do your job. You go into a place like, and you see five people there that you know you can kind of take a deep breath and it's like oh my god
3: but you do your job and that's what you have to do
0: and when you go home I guess you sort of have to compartmentalize it as well
3: of course you do of
1: course you do Jess what about you what was your aha interview moment
2: I'll say I'm always excited when we get a judge or a prosecutor to talk to us because it happens so rarely. And because this crime was 50 years old, we were lucky enough to get that access. Judge Wertheimer, who could fill us in on the ins and outs of the trial, on why he sentenced List the way he did. 50 years later, he can reflect on it as just a human and give me his thoughts on living through it, on John List, his theory on List, all of that, that you would never get during the time the trial was going on.
3: He covered his tracks really, really well. And of course he was this person that if you walked into a crowded room, you'd never take any notice of him. He didn't command a room, he was just somebody there. And you might even say, oh, look at that nebbish or something like that, but that would be the only way. And your thought would go away. The fact that somebody recognized him from the bust that was made on America's Most Wanted is astounding to me because I don't think it looked that much like him to tell you the truth. But it was a pretty good one. The glasses did it. The glasses on the bus were exactly the glasses he wore.
0: We'll be right back.
1: Jess, Rebecca, there were so many things I loved about getting to work on Father Wants Us Dead with you, but one of them was getting to meet this amazing gallery of characters that you interviewed. Now, I'm a little different from our listeners in that I've listened to these interviews So many times I feel like some of these people are extended family members. Much like our listeners, though, I only really know them from their voices and the stories they shared with you. So I want to take some time to talk a little bit about the other stars of Father Wants Us Dead. And we have to start, Jess, with Barney Tracy. Thank God for Barney Tracy, right? So before we get into it about Barney, let's play a clip so listeners can be reminded. Barney is the former Westfield police chief. And we come back to him repeatedly throughout all nine episodes of the podcast. And in this clip, we're going to hear he is first encountering John List in person.
3: See, one of the things that was shocking to me was all the things I had read about John List. They described him as being milk toast, a timid guy, shy, you know, awkward. So I had an impression of when I walked in a room, what I would see and how I would feel. And when I walked in the room and I saw him, he's a much bigger man than I expected. He had a large head and he had a very deep, monotone voice. And I did not expect him to have this type of voice. Almost a commanding voice. And I was shocked. He was just as a matter of fact. It was more like we were wasting his time. Okay, so that was Barney Tracy. Jess, you
1: interviewed him? Yes, I did. Tell me about that interview. When did you know it was going to be an interview that became a key part of the entire podcast?
2: I guess when he started to get choked up, probably. You know, I went into that interview, I expected him to be, I don't know, just sort of our fact checker, telling us the barest details of the case and the progression. But I learned it was such a deep part of his life. I mean, this was the biggest case that he was on. He was made detective and handed the case. And then beyond all that, he had really emotional reactions to just us thinking about the case and analyzing the case and him being a father.
1: Rebecca, what was it like hearing that interview?
0: I think the thing that surprised me the most was all the things he talked about that weren't related to what happened in this case specifically, but religion and what it's like growing up in a religious family. And what it was like for him to try to understand John List, given that they were both religious people, but John List got it so wrong. To Barney Tracy, he was talking about religion being about loving everyone and doing right by everyone and being charitable and not being afraid to ask for help and being humble and all of these things that John List could never figure out.
3: He just has this pride that just is unbreakable. You know, I'm John List. I live in this beautiful house. I wear this beautiful suit and tie, and I'm something really good and special. Well, humility might have saved him and saved his family.
1: You hear that in his voice every time he speaks, that mystery that cannot be solved. And it's so powerful, I think. And speaking of powerful, Rebecca, you were the one who interviewed a couple of Patty List's friends. And those interviews are devastating. Can you talk about those interviews?
0: I was really glad to talk to all of them because together their interviews, you know, let us paint a picture of what Patty was like and what her brothers were like. Those were my main objectives there, right? To learn about what these people were like and what was happening leading up to the killings. But what really stuck with me and and really tugged at the heartstrings was what it was like for them in those moments when they first learned about the murders. Because, they couldn't believe it. And, and how could you believe such a thing?
1: Let's listen to one of those moments. This is Rhonda Hanson Conway.
3: I know when I found out that day, my dad told me, I just went, uh, went crazy. I just started yelling at my dad saying, Oh, you never liked her. You're just saying that, you know, and I was hitting them and screaming. And then, you know, it was true.
1: So that had to be difficult for you. I mean, hearing these stories over and over again, hearing the pain and anguish still in their voices 50 years later, putting yourself in their shoes, how do you get through these kind of interviews?
0: I think really the difficult part is actually asking someone to take you there, to take you to this worst moment in their life and tell you what it's like. Like if someone called me up and wanted to talk about the worst moment of my life, I don't know if I'd be able to open
1: up in the way that these people did. Did it take a lot of convincing for you to get them to tell their stories?
0: For most of them, it didn't. Some people didn't call back. You know, I'd leave messages and they didn't call back. But for people like Rhonda or her friend Susan, they really wanted to tell the story right. And Ed Saradaki said this too. He said, I'm calling you back because I want to see it done right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we have to talk about the biggest name on Father Wants Us Dead after the names Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett, of course, but John Walsh, the host of America's Most Wanted. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to get him, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely took several calls, emails, correspondence. Maybe we'd be able to, you know, talk to him for a few minutes and then got super lucky and he just kept talking and I just kept asking questions.
1: Now, tell, the way you describe this to me, he's, he's quite a character. Tell me a little bit about this. He,
2: he is such a character. Um, he's so emphatic. He is so passionate about what he does. And he doesn't mind tooting his own horn about the criminals they've caught, the cases they've solved, the children they've found over the years. You know, he's, he was happy, I think, to be able to brag a little bit and reflect on John List.
1: Let's play a clip of John Walsh. This is not something that we heard in the podcast proper. a little bit of an outtake from your interview, right, Jess? Yep.
2: Do you remember when you got the call that um, he had been found or captured?
1: I couldn't wait to call Frank Bender. I could not wait to call Frank and say, Frank, you know how they're laughing at you and me about using a a bust on television of a bad guy? Well, guess what? That son of a bitch is in handcuffs. And Frank went, I knew it. Because Frank was a very deeply good kind guy had a beautiful wife they both died within months of each other from cancer but that's the kind of guy he was and he was just he said you know what we didn't do backflips or pop any champagne we say it's just horrible that he did this to his own family and it's horrible that he got to stay out there
3: all those years
1: okay you can hear john walsh is an
2: intense guy Just a little. I mean, if you were to, say, drink every time he said son of a bitch in our interview, I think you would be wasted by the end.
1: Speaking of interview subjects, I want to switch gears and talk about something that happens in Episode 7. Now, Episode 7 is probably my favorite episode. The two of you trace lists eventual capture in Virginia, and every time I listen to it, I just get chills. It's all so immediate and powerful, and you really feel this incredible triumph of law enforcement finally catching this guy after nearly two decades.
0: Yeah, I loved talking to those retired FBI agents and hearing what those moments were like. I mean, it was so intense. And just the idea that they're like, oh, we had papers in his hand, and when we put him up against the wall, I took the papers out of his hands. It's just all these details that just really grip you.
1: Now, the two of you went down to Virginia, and you met some very interesting people. There was a guy who had you meet him in a Home Depot parking lot, right? Next to the mulch. Of course, because where else would you want to do your interviews? (laughs) And then, of course, there was Hot Rod. How can we forget him and his brother? These two guys live in List's former house. I mean, can you imagine you're just sitting home one day and two reporters show up and tell you that a former mass murderer lived there? It's hard to wrap your head around.
2: Their minds were just completely blown, and I remember walking away and just imagining them going inside and Googling John List and, you know, just
1: being absolutely stunned that
2: this guy lived in their house.
1: But on a more serious note, the part of that episode that I cannot get out of my head is when you visit the home of List's widow, Dolores, and she has never given an interview about this case I want to replay that part of the episode when you knock on her door.
2: Hello, Dolores? Yes. Hi, I'm Jessica. This is Rebecca. We're um, the reporters from New Jersey that sent you a letter forever ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Take care. Yep. Well, we tried. She
1: was sweet about it. Is that hard to listen to now?
2: Yeah,
0: we were just so amped up and nervous and hoping for the best, but expecting the worst, expecting a door slammed in the face and really just hoping that whatever happened, that it wouldn't upset her because, you know, she doesn't need this, you know, on this average June day that these two women just knock on her door.
1: It's the hardest part of being a journalist because you have to do it. You have to give people the chance to tell their side of the story. And you're hopeful, maybe, even though, you know, probably not, maybe, maybe they want to talk to you.
0: Especially in this case, because we had sent a letter, but it was to what we thought was her most recent address, but we didn't know for sure because she didn't reply. So we had to go in person on the off chance that we hadn't gotten the right house, like have to give her in person that chance to comment. And we really didn't know it was the right place until she opened the door.
1: If you could have asked her one
2: question. I think about how steadfast Dolores was, and even in that press conference, sort of defending him. So... My question would be, what was John List like as a husband? Was it a different relationship than his relationship with Helen? And what did they share? What was between them? Why did she love him and stay by his side?
0: I guess I'd want to hear how you come back from something like that. How do you go on with your life and, and figure out what to do when your whole world has been turned upside down and in the public eye, no less? And you're in this place where you don't even know that many people. I mean, she really had to come back from a lot.
1: I think the thing I wonder about is whether or not any of her friends where she lives now knows about her history. Uh, Has she talked about it? Has she told them? Uh, It's so strange to think that she would have cut off part of her life and not been able to talk about it ever again. But how do you bring that up in conversation, right?
2: Yeah, maybe she's compartmentalized it and who would blame her?
1: Okay, the white whales, who couldn't you land? Who was the biggest interview you really, really wanted?
2: Elijah Miller, John List's attorney. If you're out there still, I am waiting, patiently, patiently waiting for your call back. I mean, I think I left that guy probably a dozen messages, increasing my level of begging. Rebecca, what about you?
0: Uh, it was Dolores, definitely. She's the one who, like I said in the podcast, she's the only one who knows about this whole chapter of their lives, except for John List. She's the only one who can really tell us what that was like, what their marriage was like, but also the aftermath.
2: And also, of course, Conan O'Brien, who happened to attend the List trial while he was on SNL. Rebecca, I know you tried really hard to get him on.
1: Yeah, Conan, call me. Come on, Conan's people. We'll make you the star of your own bonus episode. Jess, Rebecca, this is the final part of our final bonus episode, unless Conan calls, of course. But I think it's time to get real with our listeners. And the truth of the matter is, as hard as we worked on Father Wants Us Dead, the week before we dropped the first episode, we had no idea if there would be any listeners. I mean, everyone
2: has a podcast these days, right? I just didn't know where it would land in the sea of podcasts that
1: exist.
0: I remember that first day when someone told me it had 6,000 downloads and I just got ill from the stress of it.
1: Well, the podcast really did find an audience and a big one. We're coming up on 1.5 million downloads in our first 45 days. Woo woo! Yeah. And that audience keeps growing around the world. As we're recording this, we're in the top 10 on Apple's true crime charts in the UK, Argentina, Canada... Ireland, New Zealand, and wait for it, Oman. I love it.
0: Yeah, I actually get emails in the middle of the night from people because they're listening on the other side of the world, which is kind of surreal.
1: So the question I want to ask is, why do you two think this podcast has resonated for people? I mean, we all know that the two of you are brilliant journalists and storytellers, but is it more than that?
0: I can't take compliments, so I'm going to say it's definitely not just about us. I think the List story hasn't been told in depth in a long, long time. And there's a lot of people who don't know the story. And then all the people who do think they know it, but are learning all these new details. And you get to hear the voices of the people who are really involved and they really bring it alive. And so I'm always going to give credit to those sources.
2: I think for me, I'm shocked that As well known as the story is in Westfield, I didn't realize John List is a big name among true crime junkies. I had no idea. I thought it was just a local story that had kind of haunted a town and maybe a county. But John List is a name that those true crime diehards really know. He's like Elvis to them. Yeah, exactly.
1: Disturbing those people are. Those
2: are our people. We love you.
1: Let's be honest, though. It also has a great title, right? Father Wants Us Dead. That definitely stops you in your tracks and grabs your attention. Who came up with it?
2: All credit to Rebecca. I mean, I think we had a list that we kept adding to with about 20, 25 different names. And I saw this on hers and was like, this is great. And when we presented it to the editors, that was it. You guys loved it. And the podcast was named.
0: And that was from another thing that Rhonda Hanson Conway had said to me in our interview, something that Patty had said to her shortly before her death.
3: At some point she had told me that she knew her father wanted her and her brother's dead.
0: Wow. So she said that she thought her dad wanted to, wanted to kill them or wanted them dead. Mm -hmm. Wanted them dead. Yeah.
1: So as much as this podcast has found an audience around the world The thing that amazes me is that it really is a local story. It's so specific to the town of Westfield in New Jersey, and we keep discovering new connections. The other day, a friend reached out to me on Facebook to say he'd listened to the first episode, and within five minutes, he heard his mother's cousin. Uh, That was the prosecutor called to the scene of the crime, Michael Mitzner. I assume something similar has happened to you both.
0: Yeah. There are those real concrete connections that people have to the story. Like we've heard from prison guards who knew him from prison or a woman whose dad was List's barber and said he always tipped really nicely. Shocking. And there's also these people who reach out just because they feel connected to the case because they were young when it happened and they'll never forget it. And it's just like a part of them now.
1: Just your mom keeps hearing from people.
2: Am I right? (laughs) I love this. Uh, I am the most famous person to my parents now, at least, because they have three times had people tell them that they really need to listen to this new podcast. And they love to just reply and explain who I am and, you know, soak up the kudos.
1: That's got to be a proud parent moment if ever there were one. You guys talked about this a little bit at the end of the ninth episode, but do you think this story will ever go away or is it just one of those stories that gets told and reimagined and retrofitted for decades and centuries to come?
0: Maybe. Maybe there's something that's always going to stick around about this story. Maybe it's like a Greek tragedy, Medea, right? Killing her kids out of some warped idea that she should.
1: There's something so primal about Familicide. It, it goes back to the Bible. It's in Hamlet. It touches on our most profound anxieties about what it means to be human right
2: yeah and it makes the story so complex for us who cannot understand harming the people that are closest to us i think that's what has made the story stick around this long
1: okay guys last question and you know it's coming is there going to be another season
2: well i'd say we've probably said all there is to say about john list but there are plenty of other crimes that i think we'd love to tackle
0: Yeah, definitely. I would say the problem is that there are too many crime stories we want to tell, and narrowing it down is going to be the problem here. Because, as we all know, New Jersey, unfortunately, a great place
2: to find unbelievable crimes. Surprising no one. And if there's a specific crime you'd like to hear us cover in Season 2, let us know at inbox
1: at com. Jess, Rebecca, can I just say it has been such an extraordinary privilege working on Father Wants Us Dead with you both. And I want to thank you for inviting me into your very disturbing project. Any shout outs you guys want to make?
0: Uh, I sound like a broken record, but all the sources, we couldn't have done it without them. And they were very brave to
2: talk to us. And I'm going to say Andre Malak, who came with us on many, many of these reporting trips, did lots of video, collected great audio, and was always just our rock as we were prepping for one. Plus also the folks at Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, who listened us do take after take after take uh, over 9, 10, 11 episodes now. And of course, our listeners. Thank you guys so much. You have made us a hit.
1: And my final shout out to Jacob Stone our sound designer and editor, who pulled all of this together so beautifully. We could not have done this without him. You're awesome, Jacob. All right. For one last time, I'm going to throw it over to you guys. Take us home.
2: For NJ.com and The Star Ledger, I'm Rebecca Everett. And I'm Jessica Remo. This has been Father Wants Us Dead, a production of NJ Advanced Media. It's written, reported, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasaggio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers.
0: Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound On Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone.
2: Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music, and Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Mallock. Our website was designed by Allah Saleem. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy.
0: Visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story,
2: including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. You can reach us at inbox at com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.